0: Good morning, really nice to have the opportunity to open this series. It's a really fast-paced book. If you haven't sat down recently and read through Acts, let me encourage you as we start this series to just take some time, perhaps in this next week, to read through the lot. There's extraordinary things that happen as you read the book of Acts and, and somehow The experience of sitting there and reading it all at once really brings it to life. We're going to be looking in the weeks ahead at the global gospel. And I think it's going to be for us an adventure and hopefully as we progress a real challenge as well. You can't come away from any reading of any part of Acts unchallenged by the power of the gospel and the purpose that we have as God's people. If, in the Pepper family, we had a league table for the speed at which we read, I'm afraid I would be pinning up the bottom. This was really evident uh, when we were on holiday last week. Uh, I couldn't use the excuse there that I'm busy. My lot devour novels at an extraordinary pace, and I'm just left there trailing in their wake looking rather stupid. I enjoy a novel. I love to sit with a book. But the book has to grab me. And the book has to keep me grabbed. I think publishers know that there are lots of people like me. You might be one of them. Their tactic is to try and grab our attention so that we buy their book. So they put a few sensational quotes on the back. And they put a brief synopsis of the plot. I'm just reading the second book in a trilogy. Having been gripped by book one, I didn't need any challenge or inducement to pick up book two. As we start our series in Acts, it's worth just noting that this is book two. Luke, the physician, wrote one of the detailed accounts of Jesus' life. And he pieced that together from eyewitness evidence and he sent it to one Theophilus. It says this at the beginning of Luke. It's written to Theophilus so that you can be certain of the truth of everything that you were taught. That's right why Luke was written. Acts as a follow-on, also written by Luke. And it's also addressed to this same Theophilus. But let's just note immediately the difference between Luke's writing. And my holiday novel. Luke is not writing to entertain his readers. He's writing to teach them. And he's writing to convince them. Luke's gospel and the sequel, Acts, are there to point us to the person of Jesus. They're there to help us to understand the Messiah and his role more clearly. They're there to encourage us in our faith. And Book Two records the extraordinary events that followed the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus and his ascension back to heaven. It's the story of the birth of the church, it's the story of the growth, both numerically and geographically, of the church. This is the story of the God of the universe equipping his people with power to do the task that they couldn't possibly do in their own strength. It's a story of people whose lives were utterly transformed. It's a story about people going to cultures that they were unfamiliar with, where they didn't really fit, and working out how they proclaimed Jesus in that culture. It's a story of fearless people. It's a story of people totally convinced by all that they had seen and heard about Jesus. I think as we begin, it's important that we place Luke in the bigger context of the whole of the Bible. Because one thing becomes very clear as you read the pages of Acts, is that a promise that was made To God's people, Israel, a long time ago, is being fulfilled as we turn the pages of the book. See, one of the mega themes that we have in the Bible is God's choice of a particular nation who would bless, or who he would bless, but he blessed them so that they could be a blessing to others. There was a purpose in his choice of the nation, and there was a purpose in his blessing of the nation. And the bulk of the Old Testament is in one way or another focused on God's dealing with the Jewish nation who oscillated from obedience to rebellion. Obedience to rebellion. Very early in the Bible timeline, uh, we encounter Abraham. And we see that God makes a promise to Abraham. It's back there in Genesis 12. So we're looking at about 1,900 years before Christ. There's three parts to that promise. Part one, that Abraham would have descendants. Now, for a long time, that promise looked really unlikely. Abraham himself and his wife Sarah thought, how on earth is this going to be fulfilled in our age? in our old age it just hasn't happened for us but god fulfilled that promise there was a second part of the promise land that people would have a land and there was a third part of the promise that abraham would be a blessing he would be blessed And through his family, all of the earth would be blessed. Just wind forward 400 years and we come to Moses. God makes a promise to Moses. And in that promise, he makes it clear. It says this in Exodus 19. Israel will be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Israel from the outset was supposed to be a light shining to the nations. We wind forward another 400 years and God makes a promise to David, Israel's greatest king. The promise was that through David's descendants, God would establish a kingdom that would last forever. So, against the odds, Abraham had descendants, promise fulfilled. Just after the death of Moses, under the leadership of Joshua, Israel enters the promised land. Promise fulfilled. Maybe only in part yet, but promise fulfilled. Jesus, after the death of Moses, under the leadership of Joshua, Israel entered the land, I said that one, promise fulfilled. In King Jesus, the eternal kingdom promised to David was established. Promise fulfilled. And here in Acts, we finally begin to glimpse how through the nation of Israel, other nations are to be blessed. But as we'll see as we take a magnifying glass to our passage at the outset, the disciples actually still, still didn't get it. They had a particular picture of what it meant to be the chosen people of God. And it's a picture that is thoroughly overhauled and transformed in the book of Acts. If you want a headline for Acts, it could well be God Goes Global. And in the next few weeks we'll see the extraordinary spread of the gospel, the extraordinary spread of Christianity in the years following Jesus' death and resurrection. As we look in a bit more detail at verses 1 to 11, we'll focus on four things. The disciples had confidence in their message because they had proof of the resurrection. The disciples received power to go and proclaim the message and the disciples needed a change of perspective to understand their mission and the disciples were given a clear purpose. Can you just advance the slide for me? It's not going ahead. Thank you. (laughs) How did it work for you? That doesn't seem fair. (laughs) So let's look at proof, first of all. I don't know what you're like with your memory, but my memory is not particularly brilliant. My struggle is that I lack confidence sometimes that things that I think I remember really happened. I have this really vivid memory from my time in Africa of driving my motorbike into a village where everybody was drunk. The memory is just completely clear. I know it sounds really bizarre and whilst as a memory it is clear, I don't trust it. On the other hand, old friends regularly tell me things about my life that have completely slipped from my brain cells. I have a friend who can tell me what I ate at meals 20 years ago. I have no idea what I ate last week. (laughs) I'm banned from going to blockbusters because on a number of occasions I've gone and I've come back with a movie and the family have said, dad we saw that one last week. Memory can do strange things, can't it? It can do very strange things. And I think God was aware of that when he ensured that Jesus appeared to over 500 people in that 40-day period between the resurrection and the ascension back to heaven. I imagine God wanted witnesses to be able to say with confidence that they'd spent time in the presence of the risen Christ. I imagine he wanted this community to meet the risen Christ, so that people did not have to rely on the vagaries of one person's memory. This was a community memory. Lots of people could tell the same story. You see, if 500 people had said to me that they were in the village in Africa with me that day, and yes, everybody was drunk, then it goes from dodgy, hazy, dreamlike possibility... To confirm fact. I know then that it was true. 500 witnesses is pretty compelling. 500 people willing to say that they'd met with somebody who'd risen from the dead means only a fool would discount them. Even the worst cynic, the worst cynic would surely feel compelled to take a closer look at the evidence. In these first three verses, Luke is wanting to remind the reader that the foundation for this incredible story that's to follow is absolutely secure. You see, if Jesus hadn't lived, if he hadn't taught the things he did, if he hadn't died, if he hadn't risen from the dead, if he hadn't proved beyond all possible doubt that death had been defeated and the barrier between man and God had been defeated and destroyed, then there would be no Acts. See, the events of Acts are utterly dependent on the life and ministry and death of Jesus. So then there's power. As we've already said, Acts is the sequel to Luke's Gospel. But partly by way of reminder, and partly as a crucial foundation for all that lies ahead, Luke draws our attention to something that Jesus had told his disciples before his ascension. It's there in verse 4. Once, when he was eating with them, he commanded them, do not leave Jerusalem until the Father sends you the gift he promised. As I told you before, John baptized with water, but in just a few days you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. See, for what? Lay ahead, the disciples needed power. In the four accounts of Jesus' life that the Bible gives us in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they all paint a very honest picture of Jesus' top team, the disciples. They were quite a motley crew, they squabbled, they disagreed amongst themselves. Often they didn't understand what was Jesus was trying to teach them. And they definitely couldn't always be relied upon to do the right thing. If you were going to an employment agency and you said you wanted to recruit a group of 12 guys who could market your idea to an international audience, it's absolutely unthinkable that the CVs of any of this lot would have been forwarded to you in the, to you in the post. You wouldn't have got them. These aren't the ones that an agency would have chosen. However, they'd spent three years with Jesus. They'd listened to him when he said, don't leave Jerusalem until the Father sends you the promised Holy Spirit. They'd learned enough. They'd seen enough. They trusted Jesus enough to understand that whatever it was that was ahead of them they really did need the resources of heaven to get the job done. If Jesus had said, wait until God gives you the Holy Spirit, then wait, they would. God's Holy Spirit was and is God's gift to the the church to equip us to get the job done. That's what the Holy Spirit's main role is, to equip us to get the job that we're called to do done. Whilst on holiday, uh, the lads persuaded me to take a ride on something called the Scrambler. It was a big wing-shaped inflatable that four people could lay on, each with handles to hold on to. Initially, The Scrambler was a very relaxing place to rest. We could lay in the warmth of the sun and chat as we bobbed up and down on the waves. It was a bit like laying on a swimming pool on a lilo. You just felt really chilled. But the Scrambler wasn't ever supposed to just bob up and down calmly on the waves. Because the Scrambler was attached to a speedboat. And that speedboat had a big engine. And under the power of the speedboat, the scrambler took you on what was a white-knuckle ride. You just had to cling on. There were moments when that was utterly terrifying. There were moments when it was fantastic fun as you bounced across the waves. If a church leaves the Holy Spirit out of the equation or if it assumes his role is simply to bless Christians, then we're just like the scrambler before it's attached to the speedboat. We're just bobbing up and down on the waves. What the Holy Spirit seeks to do is to propel us forward to do the work that God has called his church to do. And as we'll see in Acts, it was often a white-knuckle ride. It was often a white-knuckle ride. The disciples weren't always kept safe. They faced danger at many a turn. Some would lose their lives in painful circumstances. But they knew with an absolute clarity that God's Spirit was with them and in them empowering them for the task that the church is called to. When we ask to be filled with God's spirit, we should recognize that we may well face a white-knuckle ride. But the purpose of the ride is building God's kingdom. The purpose of the ride is to take the glorious good news of Jesus to the ends of the earth. So the disciples were wise enough to wait. They were wise enough to wait to be empowered by the Holy Spirit. But the disciples also needed a change of perspective. Verse 6 reveals that they were not yet clear what the bigger picture was concerning Jesus' mission. Verse 6 says this, So when the apostles were with Jesus, they kept asking him, Lord, has the time come for you to free Israel and restore our kingdom? They had grasped the fact that Jesus was the promised Messiah. But they assumed that with that promised Messiah hat on, he would do what the Jewish people were expecting him to do. And that was to free the Jewish nation from the oppression of Roman rule and restore the kingdom to Israel. Just notice from verse 3 that in the period after his resurrection, he'd been teaching about the kingdom of God. Jesus had been trying to get into the minds of the disciples what the kingdom of God looked like. And actually, they still hadn't really grasped it. And it looks like the disciples almost pestered Jesus with this question. It says in verse 6, they kept asking him. And you can understand why. Through his resurrection, he'd proved beyond all possible doubt that he was Messiah. Because after all, rising from the dead is the absolute trump card, isn't it? Now surely the first thing that Messiah will do is liberate the nation. But when they ask the question, as often with Jesus, there's that slightly enigmatic response. In verse 7, Jesus says this, The Father alone has the authority to set these dates and times, and they are not for you to know. Don't bug me, guys. It's not for you to know this. And in part, a revelation of the global impact and significance of what had happened when Jesus emerged from the tomb alive. Verse 8 says this, And you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you'll be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere, in Jerusalem, through Samaria, in Judea, and to the ends of the earth. What's going to become clear as we read through Acts is that what Jesus was alluding to here required a seismic shift in the Jewish understanding of what it would mean for them to be a blessing to the nations. Their understanding really had to change. And it would take an incredible powerful intervention by the Holy Spirit to convince the disciples that non-Jews were invited to the party on equal terms as Jews. Here, we're simply introduced to the fact that the gospel of Jesus, the good news of Jesus, is to be taken to the ends of the earth, to all people, everywhere. And as we progress through Acts, we'll see that this caused all sorts of tensions, all sorts of questions, opposition. This shift of perspective was no easy thing. And the disciples would learn that Messiah had come, but his purpose was not simply to liberate Israel from Roman oppression, but it was to offer liberation to the Roman oppressors and to anybody else who was prepared to respond to the testimony concerning Jesus. Jesus. Let me ask a question. Does the gospel, and does the gospel's view of the nations, inform my view of the nations? Or do I get my perspective from somewhere else? Here's a headline from the Daily Mail. One out of every five killers is an immigrant. Clear, next slide. They've stolen all our jobs, Daily Mail headline. Muslim bus driver refuses guide dog on board. Why those headlines? Do we get our perspective on the nations from the Bible? Or do we get it from some other source? Do we see other people as a threat or as an opportunity for the gospel? What's clear here? is that God's heart is for everybody in the whole world. God wants that good news of Jesus to reach every person. And if we're guilty in our thinking of sidelining particular groups, for racial reasons, for religious reasons, for social reasons, then we really, really haven't understood the global nature of the gospel of Jesus. If the disciples' perspective was being changed, their purpose from this point on is really clear. I love the sort of matter of fact way that the ascension is mentioned there in verse 9. And then these two men in white robes appear in verse 10 with their message. They say, Men of Galilee, why are you standing here staring up at heaven? Jesus has been taken from you into heaven. But someday, he'll return from heaven in the same way that you saw him go. Can't help but but think that the guys in the white robes were essentially saying, okay, lads, you've had your marching orders. Come on, let's get on with it. The job's not going to get done if you hang around here staring up into the clouds. See, from this point onwards, the disciples knew what the course of the rest of their lives was. They were to spearhead the spread of the good news of Jesus throughout the Roman world and beyond. God was no longer to be understood to be a parochial God of Israel, but as the God whose offer of salvation extended to all men everywhere. What started in Jerusalem was to spread out to Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. This Jesus story was completely inclusive. So as we draw to a close, we must ask another question. Has the mission changed? Has the mission changed? Has the task been fulfilled? What should our role be in fulfilling it? There are far more people in the world today who haven't heard the good news of Jesus than there were in Jesus' time who hadn't heard the good news of Jesus. The task has not changed. The task has actually got bigger. Our mission today as a church is just the same as that which Jesus gave to the disciples. We start here in Ipswich, but we also engage with taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. Your calling may be primarily local. Or your calling may be to serve God somewhere else in the world. Is that a question you've ever asked? Is that a question you've ever asked yourself and prayed through? Lord, could you use my gifts and skills? Could you use my passions? Could you use me somewhere else in your world? Because there are many billions of people, two-thirds of the world and more, who don't know Christ. It's comfortable to be here in all sorts of ways. Could God be calling you somewhere else? For all of us, it's a question we should ask. God may say, no, you're just fine and dandy where you are. You're where I've called you to be. Or he may just be nudging you through his spirit to do something different for him in building his kingdom. But whatever your part in his mission, you can have the confidence that God promises to empower you with his Holy Spirit as you go about his business. You see, we've got nothing to fear from other religions. Those Daily Mail headlines are there to engender fear in us. They're there to turn us against immigrants or people from other religions. They can influence and affect our attitudes. We have nothing to fear from other religions. We have nothing to fear from Messrs. Stephen Hawkins or Richard Dawkins. We have nothing to fear from the rampant atheists. Why? Because we stand on the truth. Because we've been transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because we have the Holy Spirit. God's Holy Spirit. God's presence within us to do his purposes in his world. As we said at the beginning, Acts is Luke's second book he's not around to write a third and make it a trilogy if he did write book three wouldn't it be great if we were in the stories wouldn't it be great if there were stories told about god's faithful people in ipswich who took the transforming good news of jesus to ipswich to suffolk ...and to the ends of the earth... ...this glorious gospel... ...is global...